0: This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, Kelly Slater. Sometimes I just can't sleep because I'm so excited about surfing the next day.
1: I've had the opportunity to sit down with the legend twice, once in 2016 at his home in Malibu and again in 2019 at his newly minted surf ranch. I mean, think about it. You're potentially going
0: to spend all the money you spent your whole life making to go and try to build this
1: thing that you hope works. We start our chat from 2016, when Slater opened up about his difficult childhood.
0: I think my mom raised the three of us boys on $2,000 a month and not much help from my dad. The downside of constant
1: trotting.
0: Probably the hardest part for me is my daughter feeling like she doesn't have a dad there all the time. And the most dangerous place he's ever surfed. It's shallow, it's an intense wave. Uh, quite a number of people
1: have died there. All that's coming up right here on the In Depth with Ram Bensinger podcast. How often does your schedule change? My schedule changes every
0: morning, <laughs> 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 based on the surf. Basically, uh, you no. Know, I mean, as you as you've seen, and, and yeah, I'm sorry for that. Uh, as you've seen, though, the um, surf's unpredictable, and my life is based around what the waves are doing, and. Um, that sounds like some burnout thing from the 70s or something, but it's really true. I mean, I, I basically get up and live my life according to what what the surf's doing. So,
1: you know, we've... Uh, I, we've I mean, you, you could get up, you know, one morning in Hawaii and see the weather's such in Australia where you hop on a plane that day and fly to Australia, something yeah, like that had, dramatic.
0: Had we not had this interview lined up for today, I would have done that the other day. Really? Yeah. There was a a big cyclone that hit Fiji and then moved down between Fiji and New Zealand and there was great surf in Australia all week.
1: How often do you travel?
0: I pretty much just permanently travel. Um, people ask me where I live, I say in a suitcase, but I, I mean I have a home in Australia, I have a home in Florida, um, I have a home in Hawaii and I have a, a place here in California that um, I stay at. So I have, actually I have two places in California I stay at. So. Um, I'm just sort of set up and every every other place I go I have friends that have homes and I stay with them usually.
1: Does the travel ever get old?
0: Yeah, the travel gets old. Um
1: I mean after after 32 years you mentioned of doing it.
0: Yeah. Is it There's a certain monotony to to traveling and competing at the same places every year, but um the, I think the excitement of travel never disappears. I mean, I always said if I wasn't a surfer I'd probably get a job like um Doing body work or being a chef or, you know, some something I can get up and move and go and,
1: and uh, check out different places in the world. I understand you are known to show up at the airport like minutes before an international flight. Yeah. will Take off.
0: I th- yeah, I am. I get, I actually get really. You've um, been some close calls with your agent, Terry. Oh, I miss call. I miss flights pretty often. But. Um, oh, you really do. Yeah, I missed some flights. We missed one the other day, but it was an inner island flight in Hawaii, and it, we, there was another one half an hour later. But uh, What's the that, worst
1: one you've missed?
0: No, the worst one, remember, there was one I got to that going to Chile, and I don't know how they let me on the flight. But From where were I you was, flying out of? We were flying from L.A. to Chile, and uh, a friend of mine was on the flight, and we were in Brentwood, and we'd, it, we left Brentwood two hours before the flight. And it's usually, you know, if there's no traffic, it's like a 20-minute drive. And it took us an hour and 45 minutes got there 15 minutes before the flight was supposed to take off and the manager of the flight is like oh, no problem no problem but uh i don't know the guy the guy uh surfed or something the manager and, and we pulled up at the curb i think it was 16 minutes till takeoff <laughs> at international and uh i walked in and i was like stressing out and the guy's like no 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 it's okay it's okay no problem we'll get you on he's just like super cool
1: latin guy explain why you travel and and pack a heavy water filtration system
0: i occasionally will carry a um i have this suitcase uh, full of uh, a filter system filtration system for water that i do take um just to know i'm getting clean water where wherever i go you might be in brazil one week and then south africa the next week or whatever and just to kind of have a consistency in your water you know if you you get somewhere and you don't want to get um, a bunch of bottles of plastic bottles of water so that's kind of the the idea behind it keep consistent hydration and, and um, not, not create too much garbage and you can use them in municipal water source instead of like you know just having to go buy a bottle of water all day
1: why do you pack food?
0: No, I'll travel like when I go to Fiji for instance I'll travel half my suitcase is just food and what do you put in it? Um. I don't know just whatever I like in my diet you know i mean i'll I'll have like a big thing of chia seeds and I'll have hemp seeds and I'll have um i don't know snack bars that I like and gluten free pancake mix and just, i don't know i'll I'll take sometimes a couple gallons of um hemp milk or almond milk or something so i don't know just when I just want to get somewhere then I know that I'm sort of like with familiar things around me i I really think it's just to to make me feel comfortable when I get somewhere.
1: I, but, I understand that there is, at least some digestive science behind your diet.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty into it. I'm kind of a food geek myself. Um, I try to go mostly gluten free. Uh, I I um, try to eat as organically as possible and um, as clean as possible. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I was when I, uh, when I was younger, I, I felt like, uh, you know, I I had so much sugar and crap in my diet that, um, you know, I would just, it would just affect me kind of strangely when I was a kid. So, you know, I used to get, like, I don't know, um, when I was a kid, I used to get these boils, like sores on my body sometimes. And I think it was because I just had too much sugar and milk and crap in my diet. So I pretty much cut almost all dairy out of my diet. Um... At this point, I don't really eat um, much corn or wheat or um, grains. Uh, I try to just stay away from gluten, and uh, I've, you know, I've done blood te- blood tests to see what I'm allergic to, so you know, cut out certain foods and um, try to get the body working as efficiently as possible.
1: How do you think that's helped you?
0: Um, my well, I used to have pretty bad sinus problems all the time I used to get like a sinusitis where I got it so bad before I had to go to the hospital a couple times Um, I used to have I think it was from a corn uh, allergy that uh, I almost checked myself into the uh, into the hospital in the emergency room once uh, over New Year's because I could barely breathe and uh, it, it was soon after that I got a, a blood test done, and corn was like one of the most uh, highly allergic things I had in my diet. So, wow. yeah, and it's something I didn't know. And my favorite thing was these red hot blue uh, corn chips that I would eat like a bag or two of every single day. And I would eat that with avocados, and I would just like, I would get these kind of asthmatic things happening, and I couldn't understand why. And then after I got the blood test, and it said corn was like one of the highest allergens in my diet. So, um, You know, sometimes you just don't know.
1: 11-time world champion, both the youngest ever and the oldest ever to do so. But there was a a columnist who tried to put your feats into uh, context, and I thought it was really great. It was the best one I read, and it goes, um, I cannot think of another athlete who's matched Slater's genius for such a long period of time. Not Kareem or Wilt or Russell, not Schumacher, not Gretzky or Nicholas or Bolt. Not Tyson or Ali or LT or Manning, not Koufax or Babe Ruth, not Magic or Bird or the Pistol. To find the proper analogy, you need to look outside of sports. Slater is to surfing what Sinatra was to crooning. <laughs> wow. I that was kind of cool.
0: That's amazing.
1: How, how much longer could you see yourself going for?
0: To, to me, there's just two things. It's a, you know, your body holding up and it's your mind being open. And... And you also have to be able to think ahead of the curve a little bit. You you have to see where things are going and be able to to, to kind of predict that. Um, or at least go in that direction. Um, you know, but it's different. Everyone's everyone's got their own unique perspective and point of view in life. To to have the inspiration and that excitement every morning like you have when you're a kid is really hard to do, you know. You gotta And you still have that? Uh, not every day, no, okay. um, no, but sometimes, you know, sometimes I just can't sleep because I'm so excited about surfing the next day. Um, but, uh, no, I don't have it the same as when I was a kid, but I think it's attainable. Um, I, I think t- in order to do that, you, ha- you have to just, um, you have to be able to let go of certain things that are, that are holding you back, you know, your mental filters.
1: And provided you could do that and continue to do that, then there's really no end in sight.
0: No, there's no end in, in sight, you know, I think it's most, in surfing it's most evident in big waves because you look at all the best big wave guys in the world are in their 30s and 40s. Um, you could argue even some of them are in their 50s, so those are guys who have so much time and experience in the water and the ocean and the elements that they, they just know how to make the right decisions and how to pick the right waves and they're comfortable enough after years and years and years of, of doing it to know what, they, what to expect. And... Um, you know, but in the fast twitch um, kind of young man's game of, you know, aerials and competing and, um, uh, you know, small waves, you know, it's just, it's natural. The young kids are more excited and they're they're quicker. And, um, you know, you have to work training your body to be fast and keep up and keep your rotation, keep your flexibility.
1: It was funny preparing for this interview. I was reading you know, a slew of stories, but one was a 2006 New York Times story that wrote about your potential retirement and obviously that's now a decade ago. Yeah. Why do you think you're still competing?
0: Competing's kind of just my stage for what i what I'm skilled at, really. Um, I enjoy, I enjoy, there's certain aspects of it I enjoy, but it, it keeps a lot of what I love to do relevant, I guess. Because it pushes me to to increase my level all the time and to be working on that. I think when you're good at something, it's hard to kind of just walk away from it and do something else. Maybe you're not as good at. Um, and I, you know, also I I really love the travel. The idea of stopping doing this, I just the idea that I miss all the uh, places and the experiences we have and all the places I've gotten to go over the years. But I mean, I can still go the, to those places, obviously, but. Um, I don't know, the competition kind of helps me to push my level too, you know, to get up in the morning and have a goal and, um, and to see how far I can push that. I think the, the idea of pushing it beyond that, I mean, I don't want. I always said when I was 40 I would never be on tour. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I, I can't think in my brain at all that when I'm 50 I'd be on tour. But the idea that I could surf events and be relevant and potentially be a threat at an event at 50 years old feels kind of cool. You know, so uh,
1: business is obviously increasingly becoming more a part of your life how do you go about evaluating offers
0: um at this point you know when i was younger obviously if, if i got an offer from when i was 15 i got an offer from quicksilver um, and they wanted to pay me five thousand dollars a year uh, for travel or for whatever and um i No, I had no money or whatever I just thought wow that's so cool five thousand dollars a year I can't believe it I was like gasping on the phone like covering oh my gosh (laughs) and uh it was so exciting for me you know like growing up in this little little city and and uh doing this thing I love and all of a sudden somebody wants to pay me for it you know all you see is dollar signs you know that's that's the first thing that comes to mind and then as you, as you follow that, the dollar signs, you know, you're obviously going to go towards what's bigger and bigger, and hopefully it'll be with some, some brand or company that you like as well, or you like the people at. Um, but all those things evolve, you know, and for me at this point, to do a sponsorship, it's got to be something that's in line with my philosophies on life, on sustainability. Um, you know, if it's food, it's got to be something that I feel healthy or something I would eat or buy or use myself anyways. Um, I think that's kind of the same with any other products or things I work to endorse. It's got to be something that makes sense in my life. Um, you know, I did get a few offers from like drink companies and they weren't in line with the things that I, uh, I think about health and um, they weren't educating anyone about health. So I didn't, I didn't take those offers. And in fact, I started my own drink company with some friends uh, based around what we thought was good. Um, so yeah, um, instead of just going after the dollars, I was able to work on something that I felt a lot sh- more strongly about. How did the idea for the surf park come about? The idea for the surf park came about, um, I had a, a guy who used to shape my surfboards named Matt Heckley call me, and he said, you gotta see this thing I saw, and eventually anyways, he showed me this video of this wave this guy had created, this idea for a wave this guy had created um in this pool that was I guess to most easily describe it as like a donut shaped pool. And it would there was an outer wall that would that had these moving parts and they would kinda line up in unison and create these like weight you know, it was like a wave going around the outside of this pool with these pistons. Right. And um it was um I don't know, I saw this video and my brain just I couldn't turn it off. I'm like, we gotta make this thing. This is incredible. And, um, easier said than done easier said than done yeah yeah long story short we started to look into the the actual technology to create the swell and we realized that that technology wasn't going to be the one that would work for us that um, didn't have as much energy as we as we hoped and it wouldn't create the wave we wanted so we kind of evolved the technology from there um, the, the idea of how to make a swell kind of quietly kept working on it for years and years um, obviously now it's 2016 that was like 2005 when we started this about two and a half three years ago my partner said to me uh, he said look if we're ever going to get this thing off the ground you and I need to just put our money up and build one of these things buy some land um, make this wave see if it works or you just go out in a blaze of glory um, failing so I was
1: like all right let's just do it let's just let's just figure this thing out way back when kind of took a crash course in finance because I think you were in high school even before your senior prom, you were already one of the top paid uh, surfers in the world. And then fast forward a few years, I think you're around 21 uh, going to buy a house. And I believe you find out you're basically broke. Hmm. Uh, how did you handle that?
0: You know, my story is kind of like a lot of other stories out there you here. And, you know, I grew up, we didn't have much money, I, I wouldn't, necessarily classify us as poor but no we didn't have any money to I mean my mom was scraping quarters together to get my lunch paid for at school most days you know I think my mom raised the three of us boys on two thousand dollars a month and not much help from my dad so we didn't you know we didn't have much money uh, and so you know it's not a sob story it's just the way it was in in my family you know we didn't when you are raised that way you don't have a lot of uh, intelligence around money and so by the time I was about 20 I guess I was like 21 22 yeah I tried to go buy a house uh, with my then fiance and uh, found out I was broke and I didn't take I didn't handle my finances at all my mom just kind of took care of it for me and um, and uh, so it was a real kind of uh, quick wake up lesson in, in, learning about your money and, and taking care of what you have and planning for the future, uh, at that time, you know, so I, I had already been a world champion. I had made over a million dollars in my life at that point and I was in debt. So, um, it was a, it was a pretty quick wake up call. what did you learn from it? Um, I learned to, well, number one, to start handling my own finances and know what I was having and, and to not overextend myself.
1: Your parents got divorced. Uh, Your your mom, you know, was basically responsible for taking care of you and uh, your two brothers And times were tough uh, financially. How often would you move condo to condo Mm. growing up? Uh, We lived in this, we lived in one house till I was 11, I think
0: 11 or 12. And then we moved, um, moved to another Condo for about three years, and then we moved in another house for a couple of years and another house for about six months And we moved around a little bit um, I think we lived in one two three four five five houses between 11 and I don't know 18 years old or something like that, um, but yeah there there were numerous occasions where We didn't have the money for things, you know and um, one of them was, um, one of them was in 1986. That same year, um, was the the world titles, the world amateur titles in England. We didn't have the money to get there. I didn't have the sponsorship to get there. And uh, my mom had this 1938 Gibson Gold Top banjo that she played, and um, she actually pawned it to get us the money to go on the, the trip. And um, so at the time, I didn't think much about it. I'm sure it stung her, you know, but um, I didn't even know. She just, you know, did what she had to do as a parent to get me and my brother to England. I think she sold it for 600 bucks or something. And that thing's probably worth like 30 grand now. Wow. So actually, if you know know anyone who has one, let me know. I wouldn't mind purchasing one.
1: How often (laughs) did she work and what were the varying jobs that she held?
0: Um, my mom had a bunch of different jobs uh, throughout the years you know I mean at one point when I was about I guess when I was like eight she became a firefighter and EMT um, she put herself through school to go and do that I think she was the first female firefighter in our county um, then she did that for like two years she got sexually harassed by her captain and ended up quitting the job she became a bartender uh, for a little while and she she uh, was bartending at the bar where my dad used to drink a lot so she, got a, she kinda got a chance to keep an eye on him and uh, probably get him a few free beers <laughs> so it was cheaper for us you know um, and then uh, she worked at the uh, right around that time also she worked at the um, the place where actually I think it was before that but she had worked at this little uh, food place at the beach where I grew up surfing and um, the Islander, hut? the Islander hut. Yeah, and she she had funny stories about that because by the end of the week, when she would get her paycheck, she would owe a few dollars for all the money, all the food we had eaten. <laughs> so basically, she just almost kept it at a certain level where she never she never made any money at
1: that job. We ate all of her money uh, throughout the week on a tab. Your dad, uh, that I know, tough topic because before he passed, it ended uh, really well, um, but he was an alcoholic and looking back on that now how do you think his drinking impacted you growing up
0: yeah it's yeah alcoholism is a a weird thing you know my dad didn't drink a hard liquor he just liked to drink beer and but he would drink beer all day long and he would think he had two beers and he could barely walk you know and um you know, he wasn't like abusive to us or anything like that. It wasn't like some crazy drunk dad. It was just like my dad was like the fun drunk dad, in fact. He wasn't a sincere guy very often, but when he was, he was It was very sincere. You know, there's a really fun side to my dad. I think everyone, to a man, probably almost every single person my dad ever met, they liked him. Um, you know, but some people didn't, you know, think he was the greatest guy towards my mom and... And uh, he was, um, I don't know, he taught me in different ways. Unfortunately, you know, some of the ways he taught me was was uh, by screwing up, and other ways it was by being funny and being a good dad.
1: How well do you recall sleeping on the concrete driveway? Oh, that's like yesterday. You...
0: Yeah, I remember that really clearly. What do you my, remember from it? Well, my parents would get in these sort of knock-down, drag-out screaming fights once in a while, and it seemed to be... I don't know how often it was, you know, looking back it seemed like it was all the time, but it, but it might have been like once a month. I i don't really remember exactly. There was just one time I remember it was getting really bad and and we were supposed to go to the mall and I was really excited we were going to go to the mall right after dark and um so we were getting ready to go outside and get in the van and drive and they started fighting and I just remember them just screaming and screaming and screaming and and uh Next thing you know, I realized we weren't going to the mall because it was uh, almost 9 o'clock, and the mall closed at 9, and this price started at, like, 6 or 7. And uh, so my brother and I didn't want to go back in the house, so we just, like, laid down the concrete. I remember just laying down the concrete, kind of my eyes open, but trying to go to sleep and just listening to him scream and yell at each other.
1: Your dad passed away 62 years old after battling cancer for yeah. a couple years, and from what I read, you were angry at him for a long time. Um, what did it take to get to the space where you were able to let that anger go before he passed away? In my early 20s, I realized I was, I had a lot of
0: anger with my dad. I remember particularly in 95, I was 23 years old. I remember just being, having like nights where I'd go to sleep and I'd be so angry at my dad. Um, And I talked to my mom about it one time and and she said, uh, she goes, you know, well, what do you want to do about it? I said, I don't know. I just want to talk to dad. I want to like ask him these things. She goes, look, you can do whatever you want, but you're probably not going to get the answer you're looking for. You know, I just she's like, I know your dad so well. You're, you He's probably not going to answer it in a way that's going to answer anything for you. You got to answer it yourself. What do you want to ask him? I don't know. Just like why he drank so much, or you know, why he was the way he was, or you know. I I don't even really know. I just was. I just had this anger towards him. And uh, I think my mom saying that kind of resolved that for me because I think I realized it was probably true. You know, he
1: probably couldn't answer things for me that I needed to answer for myself. You wrote in your book, um, there was never a time in my life that I grew so much in such a short amount of time. I stopped thinking the world revolved around me and started becoming a man and a person. Uh, When talking about kind of the last you know a couple months of uh, your father's life what uh, about that period you think kind of allowed you to grow up you know, when your parent dies you
0: i think you um there's a gosh I'd explain it there it's a it's you know one of the most awful feelings in the world there's also this sort of like um sense of like a, um there's just a sense that you've got to grow up and you've got to learn things and you're you're sort of forced you, you know there's no direction to go except for to to kind of answer things for yourself in some way there was always that sense that i one day i'll ask my dad this or one day he'll tell me this or i'll learn this from my dad and you know there's not there's not a whole lot of things that i look back usually somebody says most people think back on their dad and they go my dad taught me this my dad taught me that or he used to say this and when I think that about my dad, I just think of all the funny things he used to say. My dad didn't really, he never sat us down and said, listen, kids, you need to you know, do this with your lives. You need, in fact, he was, he was almost completely hands-off in that way. He was, um, you know, I think, I, I think in my early 20s, I was sort of yearning for that father figure, my, my dad, to come through and kind of like rescue me with this perfect answer of like what I should do in my life or something, and I, I think that's what I struggled with. Um, after having, like, financial issues and, and um, r- you know, relationships fall apart and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it became obvious when he passed away or just in that time before that that wasn't going to happen, and
1: I was going to have to find those answers elsewhere, and that was okay, you know? Your uh, late friend, uh, Brock Little, uh, s- said uh, about you, Kelly wants people to like him so much that he never says no, but his fame and success don't seem to feel very good to him. Mm. What do you think of that? Brock
0: rarely said something that wasn't just spot on or true. Um, Yeah, there's there's a lot of things around um, fame or success that I find, I I think if you look at people who are really successful, a lot of times they're doing it for strange reasons. Um, And I'd include include myself in that. You know, I think, I think when I was young, I really, I just wanted to be recognized and noticed or something. You know, it was like a a sense of insecurity. I wanted to be good at something so that it would like cover up um, any of my own personal insecurities. And so I I found that I I became, I was, I was, I always felt like I was pretty gifted physically um, with being able to learn things or do things and you know surfing became my craft and, and uh, I felt like if I surfed really good or I mean I'm, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing myself a little bit here but uh, looking back it makes sense to me um, you know I felt like it would make any kind of personal or family pain or insecurities kind of go away if I was really good at something you know. And, um, you know, I could, I could always re- resort to um, to kind of relying on success, physical success, or, you know, competitive success to, to um, make me feel whole or something, you know. I don't know. That's a little bit of a, an overview or whatever. But, it, it, you know,
1: I... And to what, what extent it, have you always found that to be true, that the success would make you feel whole?
0: Yeah, I thought that the success would make me feel whole or whatever, but you know, it, it, at the end of the day you've got to go to bed and live with yourself, you know, and um, and in your own head. And it, Just because I've had success or won titles or contests or made money, those kind of things, it, that hasn't made any of the problems or issues that I deal with myself disappear, you know, it just... Um, in some ways, it can, it can probably make them a little more difficult because you're not forced to deal with
1: things. There was a period of time where just because of your single-minded commitment to the sport, you would go pretty much months, I think, without calling your mom or your brothers. I mean, what was the mindset during that time? There were times where
0: I felt like my mom was peering into my life a little too much, and like making too strong opinions of my life. So, at one point in the mid, you know, there's just this point in the mid '90s, mid mid late '90s, where like a lot of things came to a head for me in my life, and I was trying to figure out my relationships and my friendships and my family stuff, and um, my mom and I started butting butting heads really kind of heavily around it, and. At one point, I didn't speak to my mom for like six months, and, um, but you know, I felt like I felt like she kind of crossed the line with me, telling me how to live my life, and I, I was trying to figure it out. And I, you know, I probably wasn't man enough to just grow up and say, "Oh, man, my mom's right," or even if your mom's not right, you gotta let, tell her she's right, you know, <laughs> and you gotta just go let it go, you know. Mom, moms are just trying to look out for you, but, you know, I was I was struggling with being my own person and and finding my own identity and um you know unfortunately it it it,
1: uh, our relationship suffered a bit for a while there what was that process like for you of just finding yourself and your own identity to find my own identity
0: I kind of had to I felt like I had to have a little bit of like tough love with people around me somewhat um why well because you know I was resentful about the, the the money situation we had had where you know basically all my money was gone and Um, and then, you know, also trying to have my mom tell me how to do things and why to do things. And I, I started, I, I kind of, well, you know, I did Baywatch and I didn't, I was, well, I was very reluctant to do it. I really didn't want to do it, but my mom and my manager at the time really wanted me to do it. And, and, um, he more or less just signed me up without me approving it. And I don't know how, how that happens, but in my life at that time that happened and, um, I was so embarrassed that I was going to have to do the show, and I, I just really didn't want to. I wanted to go surfing, and I wanted to win contests. I wanted to be a professional surfer, and that was it, you know. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to go be a, an actor, and, you know, surfing wasn't some launch pad to acting. It was, surfing was my craft, and that was what I was good at. I wish I had been a little more uh, mature and being able to deal with that, but I didn't have the skills at the time. You know, I was 23 years old, 24 years old, something like that.
1: How's being a father been?
0: Uh, it's been interesting in my life because just because I'm not a full-time dad, I you know, the whole time my daughter has been raised by her mother, um, almost a hundred percent in physical time, and um, you know I've been traveling. So you know, when your daughter's three and you're traveling around the world the whole time, you're like, you know, if you're not coming home every week between contest you're not seeing her very much you know she can't just jump on a plane and come visit me so um, what's the hardest part of that for you hardest part I think probably the hardest part for me is my daughter feeling like she doesn't have a dad there all the time you know so uh, you know and that's hard for her I know that was especially hard for her when she was younger, so, um, yeah, you know, I, a lot of times, a lot of times people have kids, and then their career kind of stops or gets put on hold, and, you know, mine didn't, you know, so I, I think in, in that sense, I probably have a little bit of guilt about that, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I, you know, kids are just innocent, you know, and so they need to they need to have adults around them to, you know, just to physically be there at all times. And so I think that's probably the toughest thing for me looking back at,
1: uh, you know, fatherhood. You were 10. I think your dad was the coach of your football team at the time. And he actually let you skip football practice to go surfing. Yeah. Why was that such kind of a pivotal moment for you mentally then? This is probably like in 1982 or something, and,
0: and you know, surfing was probably, f- professional surfing was like six years old at the time. You know, I, I think the first world tour year was 1977. So five, six years down the track, um, it's not like professional surfing is some big uh, potential life to live, you know. I think the person who won the world title the first year made like $2,000 that year in prize money. You know, there wasn't a lucrative thing. It wasn't like going to play football or baseball or basketball. You know, I was a pretty good football player. Uh, and those were potentially huge careers to follow. the, I mean, But I was a small kid. I wasn't going to be like some big football player and and uh, probably be successful at that. But I, I think my dad allowing me to skip uh, football practice kind of gave me a green light to go and surf as much as I
1: want. And your mom would let you skip school sometimes to go occasionally. surfing as well. And, and yeah, occasionally. As context, I mean, I think when you finished high school, you finished seventh academically in your class. So even if you were getting to skip school occasionally, I mean, yeah. there was still enough of an importance you put on academics that it wasn't negatively yeah. impacting. Yeah,
0: I, I, I was responsible with my schooling. My mom would my mom would allow us to skip one day per semester per semester to go surf. Okay. If there was contests, yeah, we could miss more days. And, you know, if we were, I knew that if I was a good student, my president, my, my principal at the school was gonna let me go and, and uh, give me extra days off.
1: So you started surfing around three years old. By 14 years old, you're beating professionals that have surfed longer than you are old. What do you think allowed you to become so talented at surfing so quickly? I think talent comes from it's, a re- it's, a, it's sort of a
0: recipe. It's like a concoction of things. Um, you know, sometimes people just have good timing. Sometimes people have a natural talent. Sometimes they get lucky. You know, there's all these sort of things that can happen. I think a, a bunch of those parts of the formula were given to me in my life. So, you know, I think I was naturally talented. Um, I, think I, was, I think I was gifted with understanding the ocean and it comes natural to me, you know. My, my dad was a real water person. Um, and just growing up at the beach, watching waves, watching guys surf, all that kind of stuff, it, that became real natural to me to understand how to maneuver on a wave and fit myself into that as, a, as if I was a, a natural part of that energy, a natural part of the, the motion that's happening in the ocean. So <clears throat> I was, I always felt like there was a, I, even now, I always feel like there's a, a, a perfect way to be in sync with what's happening in the ocean you know people look at the ocean they don't know anything about it and they're like that's crazy looking but once you put yourself
1: in this situation you realize there's a flow to everything the danger that's inherent with your sport uh, I mean we can go to the the contest recently in Hawaii the Big Eddie how scared were you at times of that
0: I don't know I wasn't real when I was actually uh, in the contest yeah the, the waves were massive the other day it was it was pretty scary but it was more scary the lead up to it you know the night before when you hear because we call the what happens we call these buoys there's these buoys offshore a couple hundred miles off or 10 miles off or whatever you know there's a few different buoys in the ocean so you call you, you look up online or you call these buoys and it tells you the height and the interval between waves and from that you can determine how big the waves are going to be so the night before we're calling the buoys and uh we see this buoy pop to like 20 20 Six twenty-five 25 or 26 feet at like 19 seconds, which basically means it's gonna be freaking huge. <laughs> that basically just translates to like 50 foot faces, something like that. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: So what are the nerves? like? You, you think you could get hurt or? Oh, no, what? I
0: mean, you, no, the nerves are you think you might drown or get in a really dangerous situation. Um, and also that pressure's on you to go out in one hour to go catch four waves. You know, that that contest, you Uh get to surf twice for an hour each, and you get four waves. Um, So, you know, you want to put on a good showing, and
1: you you want to honor the people that uh, put you into the event. Where's the most dangerous place you've ever surfed, and what made it dangerous? Um,
0: Most dangerous place I've ever surfed? I would probably say it's
1: either
0: either pipeline or... um, or Mavericks up at Half Moon Bay. Um, I would say Pipeline because a number of things: it's shallow, it's an intense wave. Uh, quite a number of people have died there—drownings or getting knocked out, hitting your head on the reef, and then drowning. Obviously, uh, Half Moon Bay, Mavericks. There's been—I know a couple. A couple of my friends have died there. It's just a big, giant wave that kind of just—it's—it's it's way bigger than pretty much all the waves around it. Just the way that the swell hits there and the way the bottom is contoured, but also the, um, there's also rocks. There's been multiple great white attacks there, there's been two or three great white attacks there. So it's just, it's got every element of fear. The water's cold, um,
1: it's it's one of the most intense waves you'll ever see. How badly did you hurt yourself when you knocked yourself out in France not too long ago?
0: Yeah, I got knocked out. I laugh about it now. but. I, I had to use all my brain power to not get um, post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards because it was kind of scary. I I almost had two wave hold down. Like I came up and the second wave broke on me as I came up, and uh, I thought it was kind of funny because the waves weren't very big and I basically had a two wave hold down. A two, a two wave hold down in surfing is kind of like it's kind of a badge of honor. You know, once you've had a two wave hold down, you've had a really heavy wipeout. But okay. this one was kind of funny because the waves were real close together, so it wasn't really like a proper two-wave hold-down. But my very next wave I took off on, and I did a turn off the top of the wave, and the wave just kind of bent away from me, so my board kind of got air and flew out of the water. And I did I just judged it wrong, and I over-rotated in the turn, and when I fell, I fell backwards, and my, my board separated from my feet and went below me, and I fell backwards and hit my head and got knocked out instantly. I just hit my head, myself super hard back here. And so I... I Like, uh, I I guess as I came to, I realized I was underwater, so I didn't breathe. And I just started swimming, and I kept swimming and swimming, but I didn't know which way was up. And I swam so far, I was starting to get more, I was starting to kind of like uh, become conscious more and more, but I was still like, felt like I was dreaming. And um, I realized, gosh, I've swum so far, I've swum like six or seven strokes, and I haven't hit air, I don't know where I'm going. And my hand kind of, I felt my hand just barely kind of go above the water, so I kind of reached my face in that direction and tried to take a breath, and I kind of breathed half foam and half air. And then um, I came up, and I, I just was, I started going into shock really fast, and uh, I just grabbed my board and turned towards shore, and the next wave hit me up towards the beach. And luckily, I was close to shore. And as I hit the shore, I fell off my board, and the next couple of wave, like one, one or two waves rolled me, kind of like I was just laying in the water, kind of getting rolled by waves, but I knew I was safe at that point. Um, and then uh, I kind of, uh, it was a really bizarre feeling because um, with the contest in town, there's a lot of fans, you know, surf fans there and stuff. Right. And so there was this, about 20 yards behind me, there was this really high seawall and there was about 100 French people on there and they were like yelling my name and taking pictures and stuff and nobody realized that I was injured. And so it was really, that's why I say it was like a twilight zone because I was like, I was like in kind of going into serious shock and um, you know, potentially could have just drowned right then. And, um, uh, and, and so I'm on the beach kind of like absorbing like this whole thing and there's people like yelling my name and taking pictures. And I'm like, I'm like laying on the beach, I'm like laying there kind
1: of completely startled at what just happened, realizing I'm really lucky. Three years after our chat in Malibu, I met up again with the 11 time world champ to discuss his brand new surf ranch and sustainable clothing brand, Outer Known. I wanted to start by talking about the Surf Ranch because when we last did the interview in uh, 2016 was before uh, the, you know this place opened. So I, I want to talk uh, about your guy, Matt, uh, who used to shave your boards back in the day. I think one day he calls you about this wave technology. Oh yeah, my shaper, yeah, Matt. Uh, um, what, what does he say and explain how from that point forward you couldn't stop thinking about it?
0: Yeah, so Matt, uh, Matt shaped my boards for many years when I was a kid and anyways, we've always been good friends, kind of like a big brother to me. And he called me one day in about 2004 or 5 and said, you got to see this wave technology and Long story short, it just got my brain turning over and turned into this long process of trying to build this wave. And it took us essentially 10 years to make it happen.
1: Why did it get to a point where your partner basically says to you, you know, we gotta get off the pot? Yeah, um, <clears throat> can we cuss? Are you gonna edit that We can, out? We, yeah, we can. <laughs> no, um,
0: we, we worked for so long to try to get someone to believe in this project and what we were doing and, and uh, to, to help us fund it and build it. And, and see the bigger picture of it and uh, essentially that, that wasn't happening and, and uh, Jeff and I thought we had you know just enough money to m- to make one where we could run at least one wave before it broke <laughs> 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 you know just something to show what this technology was the feasibility of it and we looked at all the, the, the all the possible ways of doing it between he and I and he essentially just said, Look, we, we either need to shut this project down or go build it ourselves and and uh, that was the that was the scary moment really. Find, and then finding the property and building it and, and um, I wasn't I didn't have any doubts about the technology and it working. I was Wait, just what was it about it that, that made that moment so scary though? Oh, I mean think about it, you're potentially gonna spend all the money you spent your whole life making to go and try to build this thing that you hope works or once it does, that someone gets it, and it's, uh, it's a pretty confronting thing. You really gotta believe in the, in the thing you're doing. And was it that big of an investment for you? Uh, yeah, it was a big investment, very big investment. But uh, that, was the, that was, as that all occurred, was when we found uh, further funding for it. So it, it did, we didn't really have the wave first. We kind of, uh, as, as it developed, we were able to find that help but we were going for it either way. So um, uh,
1: I, I guess we were sort of lucky in that regard. The construction workers, what would they tell people if asked what they're oh, doing?
0: What happened was the, we first were in escrow on a property in Bakersfield and it was a fish pond, like a fish farm. Mm-hmm. And um, so essentially we were going to use that same permit to cover what we're doing here. And uh, we, we found this property which was better fit for us. And um, so we called this fish pond for a long time, and it's still that's still I guess kind of the, the secret code for this place. The secret secret spot is called fish pond.
1: Why was it important to keep it secretive though? Because that, I mean, I that was part of. The... I wasn't too
0: worried about keeping it secretive. No? the other guys were. Yeah, I wasn't. Well, why I were wasn't they worried about worried it? About it? Uh, they, I think they were just worried. They just in case it didn't work. If it didn't work and we just shut it down, then we didn't have to mention anyone that we had anything other than a fish pond. <laughs> <laughs> the first time riding a wave here, tell about it. First time riding a wave. In fact, uh, if you can get your hands on the first wave I ever rode, I'll, I'll uh, maybe I'll give you the first board I rode out here. We, no one's seen the footage of the first wave because I no? stood up and it passed me by and I fell. <laughs> so. Anyway, yeah, one day I'll show that footage. But, you know, you, uh, what, Instagram you do, versus reality, right? What would you do <laughs> wrong? Oh, I didn't, know. I, I didn't know where the wave broke. And I just asked um, Noah, who's, who was our project manager, still, still, is, still is the manager of the company. Um, I asked Noah, I said, where does it break? Where does it first start to whitewater? And he said, oh, I think it's right by that pole over, you know, sit right there. And so I thought, I'll catch it as <laughs> soon as it starts to break. Not realizing that the wave is still getting up to speed and, and, and growing and um, so I really didn't understand the mechanics of the wave so I sat too deep on the wave you know you got a minute long ride I didn't need to be in the first one second of the ride I could have watched it for a couple of seconds to make sure I was safe but
1: or was that humiliating at all uh,
0: it was a little bit humiliating because there was like 30 40 maybe 50 people watching and filming and stuff and, and I just I sort of felt um, I almost felt worse for them because it was such this buildup. Like the wave's gonna be ridden, and they'd been watching the wave for three or four days before I got here, and knew that you know they were just waiting for me to come in and surf it. Bad feelings all around for about ten minutes because we had to. It it used to be about ten minutes in between waves, so it wasn't for about another ten minutes that I could
1: ride one. Describe the emotion of posting that video online and the reaction that you got. It was incredible. the 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 only problem with the
0: video uh, that. All the stuff that we posted was it was a day after the world title had been decided, and we had filmed this on December 5th, and I wanted to put it out right away, like as soon you know two days later whatever, and um, the the team decided that they didn't want to interfere with the world title, uh, you know any of that stuff you know distract from that, and uh, so I said yeah fair enough of course so we'll wait till it's done and then the day after it was done they said all right let's post it now. And then everyone thought that I was doing that to try to mess with the world title uh, you know, um, happenings, which wasn't the case. I didn't really think. I just thought, okay, that's done. Um, you know, maybe we should have waited a week or something just to sort of be politically correct or, or respectful enough to Adriano, who, who had just won the world title. But I don't think any of us foresaw how uh, viral the thing was going to be or we knew that were going to be like oh that's super cool but we didn't know that it was going to you know it sort
1: of took on a life of its own. And that was I mean not to sound corny but one of the more enjoyable experiences you ever had right just the feedback you got from that? Yeah really overwhelming but we had we had a problem in our in our design at the time
0: and uh, essentially what we designed broke after the first day so we had to shut down that was December we didn't run another wave until May so we essentially had to sort of break down the whole thing and redo it because <laughs> we we did make some mistakes on how we built the reef and stuff.
1: Why did you wonder if after you created this if you just opened the door to something that would never be able to be closed again?
0: I don't know. There's some there's a purity in just going surfing every day, you know, getting getting in your car and just driving along the coast and finding a nice wave and it's it's a it's a pretty personal thing, you know, and then I mean, we search all around the world for a perfect wave, you know, to then sort of just have it like at the push of a button is, it, there's a, there is some sort of funny feeling about it. There's something really exciting about it, but on the other, on the other side there's, I, I just wondered if there was something real negative about it or not. Maybe I was a little oversensitive to it, but I think it's all come out in the wash. I think it's just, you know, just another way to go surfing. It's, it's not taken away from the ocean or anything. I think it's adding to that whole experience. How do you think it changes the sport? It, it definitely allows for a different type of competition, you know, we run a different uh, uh, format for everyone and the scoring is a little different. The judges all uh, judge just from video, not watching it live, which is a first. So it's, it's set up to be more like maybe a time trials or a display of all your different skills at once. Um, and I think it's I think it's a work in progress. I think it's something that needs to be worked out. I don't think we have a perfect formula for it at this point. Um, I think there's
1: a I think there's a chance to have a really good formula for it, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, what are features you'd like to incorporate in future pools that you do? I would like in the pool design, any of the wave designs, to be sort of
0: custom made, like ordering a sandwich or whatever. You know, what, I do want I want a little of that? this. I don't want that. I want it to be this long and have the wave kind of section here and there and you know if people can can do that they they sort of formulate their own way to to uh, to surf what's involved with making that happen there's just some design elements that can go into the you know the way the swell is formed how the bottom is made um, the speed and size of the wave the angle that it peels at all those sort of things that those could all be customized to each surfer that's already kind of happening as it evolves more and more each person could go and sort of sit behind the computer, look at the software with somebody who knows what they're doing, and say, "Hey, let's try this and this and this." Yep. And uh, I, I think that's the exciting thing about the future of this. How do you view your competition? I got no bone to pick with any of them. You know, I think it's it's all good. I think the 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 advent of having these technologies, is, each of them are good for the other in a way. You know, because it makes you, oh, I want to try that one, or try that one, and and they're all made for different purposes. This one. Was made to be a long sort of point break barrel wave, you know. That I just envisioned making a really perfect wave like you would draw in your books in school mm-hmm. when you're a kid, um, when you're dreaming about surfing. Um, there's some others that are just more high occupancy,
1: you know, there's more waves to ride. So each of them offers something a little different. Do you find, I mean, you're a competitive guy, does the fact that you have competition out there motivate you with this sort of um,
0: stuff? A little bit, a little bit. I'm, I'm a little different these days, you know. Everyone, Everyone kind of uh, imprinted this thing that I'm the most competitive guy in the world and I have been probably at some times in my life for sure. But uh, I don't know, I don't think of it necessarily as competition now. I just think of it as like evolution, you know?
1: Everyone's sharing ideas and, and I think that they're all gonna help each other. You've said before you've kind of self-diagnosed yourself with uh, addictive uh, personality disorder and borderline OCD. It's um, maybe something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, wh- why did you think that? I don't know. I, I just I'll, I've always been really headstrong in my
0: goals, and I've been a perfectionist since I was a little kid, and and um, I always wanted to get better and better and better at everything I do. So I think when you're that way, you become obsessive about the thing you, the, the things you do. What is it though about what you do that's borderline OCD or? I don't know. Every I, I think everyone I know is has been diagnosed as either ADD or OCD or something. <laughs> I'll just join the, I'll just jump in on the on the club. <laughs> how, how do you think it helped you? When you're constantly thinking about one thing, when you have that focus, ideas come into your mind about how to change it, you know? you It would get boring if it was just the same thought over and over and over again, so I, I think that it's something you're obsessed about. Um, if, if used the right way is a good thing, you know? Someone like Nikola Tesla in history could be regarded as OCD about all the things that he invented um and you know
1: he invented numerous things that changed the world so um i, I mean I, many I, of the great innovators or champions of our time and past generations have right a, a little something off. yeah i think Maybe.
0: you got to be a little bit off like somewhere <laughs> to make life interesting <laughs> w-
1: was there a time in which you recognized that not everybody uh was that way oh yeah I, you know, I would travel with friends around the world and I'd
0: be staying up late at night, like drawing fins and working on surfboard designs and that kind of thing. And, and uh, one of my friends in particular was like, why do you do that? Well, i like, what are you doing? Like, I never even think
1: to do that. And I'm, I don't know, it's just a thing that interests me. I don't know if it's good or bad. Tell about losing 17 straight games of ping pong and crying.
0: Oh yeah, on my 18th birthday, I lost 17 straight games. My, uh, my best buddies and my mom got together and bought me a ping pong table for my 18th birthday. And uh, I, my one friend beat me, like, I think, I think it was 17 times in a row. I think, he, I think he actually let me win the 18th game so we could go to bed about 3 in the morning. But, yeah, that was personal.
1: But it's ping pong.
0: Yeah, it's ping pong, but it's, it's not ping pong. It's like, it's beating your friend. It's not really the ping pong game that bothers you. It's like losing to your friend, you know? You want to you have one over. When you have a competitive friend and you're both, like, equal in skill at something,
1: it's you just have to beat that person I mentioned to you before this I watched the momentum generation uh, documentary last night which I, I thought was great and you said in it at the time in your life where you were most competitive you would have these ultimate highs and just terrible lows and you went mm. through a period where you were depressed mm. um, what were you depressed about
0: I had a really tough like I was engaged when I was young and that broke up I was really heartbroken over it and I had a I had a few uh, tricky relationship situations that were really tough for me. And, uh, you know, I don't think I was mature enough to kind of handle those uh, the way I wish I could have. And, and uh, uh, surfing was kind of always that thing that brought me that high, you know, that, that, that uh, sort of made everything make sense to
1: me. And there was, in the epiphany that you had, you said after um, you won your fifth consecutive championship breaking, mark richards record just about the the toll that your level of competitiveness had on you um explain that being
0: competitive is kind of a double-edged sword because you you know it can help you push more and more and more you never lose that that drive to to uh achieve what you're after but um you know that can be confusing for people around you sometimes there's a there's a healthy balance in there somewhere you know and everyone's got to be responsible for their own feelings you know (laughs) So, um, it, it, look. When, you, when somebody sets out to have goals and achieve, achieve big things for themselves, there's there's going to be some occasional hurt feelings around them because you know either you're not aware of how someone's feeling or or you know they're not happy with you know maybe your success or whatever. What do you think allowed you to find the balance? Yeah, just growing up, going through stuff, realizing that you know life's bigger than this or that. It's just. Going through love and loss and learning, and you know I've lost a lot of friends. They've uh, passed away. My father. Uh, a lot of friends to cancer, suicide, accidents, um, uh, all sorts of crazy, bizarre situations. Two months ago, I lost four friends in, in four weeks. It's it's been a, a strange time in my life when people pass away, and you, you you look back and kind of review their lives and your life and and uh, start realizing, I guess, more and more what's important. You know, When you're young, you gotta go out in the world and find what is your thing, and then as you, as you get a little past all that or you achieve some of those things, you start to uh, worry more about being happy and what matters. I was gonna say in terms of what's important,
1: what's that for you? I think just trying to be clear-headed and treat people good and be happy. Um, how much more money do you think you'd have today uh, had you decided to, uh, against uh, starting Outer Known? Oh, uh, a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look,
0: the, the idea with Outer Known is um, I, I've made most of the money in my life from sponsorships, from clothing. Uh, we, in surfing, we don't make the bulk of our money from prize money. Prize money is like a 10th of what you make from sponsorships if you're doing real well. I didn't know much about the business which seems like a kind of counterintuitive reason to start a business. <laughs> but uh, I had good people around me to to, to help start Outer known and, and you know design wise and and um, sustainability wise and and that that was a driving force behind Yeah, it, that was it, a like. driving force. So the, the driving force behind it was I I wanted to know more about you know the thing that had been so lucrative for me in my life and and do something responsible there. So that's that was the idea behind starting Outer known and, and um, yeah, yeah, I left a, a a really nice contract to do that, but I... feel like an eight figure deal you left on the I table. I was making good money, but I, I, I felt like it was the right thing and it was something I was really passionate about and really wanted to be involved in and, and I'm really happy with. I, and the group of people we have together, they all believe
1: in it and we all, we all really feel strongly that we've, we've done the right thing and doing the right thing. What do you think will be involved with making it a success long term?
0: Long-term, at the end of the day, you have to make really good clothing, you know, that people like, and it lasts. And, uh, but also getting our message out about sustainability and why we started it and what our supply chain's like and how we're socially compliant with our factories and everyone is Fair Labor certified and gets a living wage. And, and, and,
1: uh, Which isn't common in
0: no, the industry. No, it's not. Right. Look, I mean, we, we launched and we were uh, priced a lot higher than what our endemic market is and we got a lot of hate for it um, understandable because people don't don't know what goes into clothing and they don't know what goes into um, the, the all the conditions around making it but every step of the way everything we're doing costs two or three times more um, and and essentially that comes back to paying people to make your clothing paying paying people the right way so fast fashion is just a thing that has become so commonplace it's you know, you walk into a Kmart and buy a $3 shirt. I mean, really think about where that was grown, all the people that touched that that uh, fabric from the time it was uh, grown in the field until it reached you. And
1: how do you make something for that cheap that has come from the other side of the world? What's happened to date? that you would say you're most proud of with Outer Known? Uh, I think that we're still in business. (laughs) Yeah?
0: Yeah. Just the fact that we're four years, five years on, and we're in business. We started this thing just kind of on a whim. Let's just try this out, and let's see if there's a place for it. And it was uh, very difficult at first, but enough people got it to understand. There's a lot of people who, who voiced that they felt alienated because they were fans of mine or supported me my whole life, and then I came out with something that wasn't necessarily accessible to them. Um, But the idea wasn't that I wanted to go make cheap clothing, I just didn't want to do it. Um, I wasn't trying to um, do something like above my means or anyone else's means either, it was just that it actually costs a lot more to do clothing that is environmentally friendly and socially compliant with factories and taking care of people, it just just costs a lot more. So our margins are lower, our prices are higher, and uh, that pisses people off. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we've, we've been able to work our supply chain and get our volumes up. But th- you know, of all the pieces we're doing, we're doing a maximum order of 300 pieces. So our volumes are tiny. Number one, it's hard to get into any kind of factory. They, they just won't take you unless you're going to do a lot of good business for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we're a small company, so there are very few factories that would take us. And then of those factories, so few are socially compliant and fair labor, fair labor association certified. Um, so we really whittled ourselves into a corner there and it was it was tough going to get started but
1: now that you I actually went and visited the factory too to see I've the visited a couple and, yeah. yeah
0: but um, we have we have a couple people in the company that visit hand visit and handpick every person that works with us mm-hmm. so it's pretty labor intensive in that way on our end um, but I would say that's that's probably the thing I most of. Uh, Worst injury you've ever had? Uh, Two years ago I broke my foot really bad and uh, I'm sort of just getting back from that. I'm still still suffering from it a little bit. Um, I had two surgeries. I had two separate injuries. Um, So it was kind of like three injury events really. So I I broke my foot really bad. Displaced and shattered a couple bones. and uh i had a second surgery to take all the hardware out which was like a whole other recovery event and then as i was getting back to where i was starting to surf good again because of all the scar tissue i had a tear in my plantar fasciitis on the bottom of my foot like turf toe Mm -hmm. essentially and um i would say that injury was probably more painful and longer lasting than the than the bone break really yeah i struggled with that for a good six eight months why oh it's just you ever had it no yeah you'll know when you get it. <laughs> That's why. I mean, I still wake up in the mornings and sometimes stand on it and go, oh, I must have surfed too much yesterday or run a little bit or whatever. I'm, it's, there's just a lot of scar tissue. Um, I, had a, I had a sort of, I would say, maybe undiagnosed um, or, or misdiagnosed injury as part of this. I had a lot of soft tissue damage that um, we didn't even know what it was. The bones were broken so badly. So uh, my foot's really compromised at this point. I mean, you can just see the you can see the the extra size of bone here, and this joint, the Liz Frank joint, doesn't really move. Yeah, mine's pretty locked in. It's like there's just so much uh, calcium buildup in that area that I don't know if it'll go away or not. But um, I get it worked on, sort of. As, maybe not quite as much as I can, but I I carry a massage gun around and just massage the crap out of it. Oh, this. do you? Yeah, and then you know I get a lot of people to work on it around the world, but the plane flights don't help. I get a lot of swelling and. For the first 24 hours, I land anywhere, my foot's really painful because it's gotten inflamed. Um, Do you think you made it worse by surfing too soon after the injury? Yeah, I'm sure I did, but I couldn't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah. that's what you do, you know. When you wake up in the morning, like, what are the lasting ailments that you'll have forever? I don't know.
0: The foot. The foot. I don't think will ever be the same. I have a I tore my labrum, my hip a few times when I was younger and had a surgery on that, and I've always kind of had effects of that. And then I, I have scoliosis in my back, and I've, I've just had like a sore lower back for about 20 years that I just pretended didn't hurt for a long time, but that does too. <laughs> but, you know, that's what you do. That's what you, uh, that's what you accept when you, when you love a sport. You know, you're gonna get hurt. You know, if you're a boxer, you're gonna break your hands or break your nose. Um, you just kind of accept that going in. We get a lot of knee, ankle, foot injuries in surfing and, um, and you know, occasional broken ribs or something, but, um, and, and plenty of cuts. You just kind of accept
1: that that's part of the deal and you hope they don't last too long. How surprised are you by just your, sus- your sustained ability to compete mm. over so long? I don't know. I, it's hard for me to have an outside perspective,
0: you know, I'm 47. I've been competing. This is my 39th year competing in surfing. Um, It's hard to have an outside perspective of what it looks like to to be 47 from someone else's point of view. Um, When I was a kid, I know that someone that was 30 seemed ancient. And when I got on tour, there was no one that was 30 years old that was still on tour. And at this point, there's only a few guys in their 30s. There's no one in their 40s. I'm the oldest guy on tour by many years at this point. Um, at one point, Mark Occhilupo had won a world title at 33 years old, and he was the oldest uh, world title winner at the time. Um, so I don't know. I think on paper it looks like something you wouldn't be able to do, but I don't think of it that way. In my head, I'm still improving, and I still have a lot to 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 learn and understand about riding waves. And and you feel that way that you're oh, still yeah. improving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably don't put in my best effort all the time, you know, I do have some injuries and that keeps me out of the water and from practicing as much as possible and I like to experiment and ride different equipment and and mess around with my boards and stuff, so I think, you know, people's critique of me would be that I'm maybe not at the top of my game all the time because of that, you know, too much kind of messing around with other equipment, but after surfing, basically the same kind of boards and equipment for 20, 30 years, you get kind of tired, you want to try something different. that makes it fun, you know. That makes it exciting and, and like something to look
1: forward to. And it pisses you off the online trolls when I, I know at times they said, well, you know, why don't you give up your spot to a younger guy? And yeah. I I know, one of the times I said that you're like tenth in the world, and they're you know 32 yeah,
0: yeah. W- world ranking yeah. well, places. You, you,
1: I mean, recently I
0: just had someone say to me last week online, you know, you should you should step aside and let one of the young kids in. I'm like, hey, tell him to take me out. It's all good, I don't mind. If somebody's gonna just beat me, that's, it doesn't bother me. Like, I mean, look, I don't like losing on that day, right. but, if, but if clearly the level's beyond me, then that's what it is, you know? But that's not the case at this point, you know? I'm Like, you know, I beat Gabriel Medina in the heat last week, he's the world champ. You know, he's current number one, he's probably gonna win the world title this year. So I, I still have that ability to do that, and I don't think that I've actually competed or surfed that well this year, to be honest. I don't, I really don't feel like I've hit anywhere close to my peak um, throughout this year. And I try to give myself a little bit of a break. It's kind of understandable coming back from almost two years off with the injury. Being this age, you know, lacking motivation sometimes. Um, sometimes just being worn out with the travel and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of hanging on just because, I don't know, just kind of hanging on, you know. It's because of what I'm used to or whatever. But Do, do you um, feel that way? Oh, sometimes I do, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I just I don't know how to muster up my best effort, you know. I get overwhelmed by the whole by the whole thing sometimes, especially in big crowds. Um, but I think I'm funny enough, after all this time I think I'm starting to get a hold on that, you know, I'm starting to understand that and, and find a way for myself to kinda of clear my head and, and just be okay with with all that distraction. Why are you indecisive about retirement? Um it's gonna be real clear to me when I retire. You know, at some point I'm just gonna say that's it. And I probably won't even announce it. You until don't think this, so? Oh, I'll announce it the second it happens. I don't think I'm gonna make, I don't think I'm gonna make this big thing about it and drag it out, but... Um, or, or if I do, it'll be because I know exactly what feels right to, to stop. But um, when you announce that, it becomes this focus of people everywhere you go and it's all they talk about to you and, and it, it creates this other sort of distraction and pressure. and. Um, I'd like to maybe avoid that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I know you said in our last interview it'd be pretty cool to still be competing at 50, but also wouldn't be bad to uh, play this one out. Uh, you compete in the Olympics and then uh, you call it quits at pipeline, You're Favorite event in Hawaii. Yeah,
0: that's a possibility for sure. And that would be. That's what somebody
1: close to you told me. Yeah, (laughs) like if they were playing it out, (laughs) that's what would happen. Yeah.
0: I think I think Pipeline's probably probably a pretty safe bet that that would be where I would announce my retirement. What? It's just well, I just love Pipeline. It's always been my sort of. uh, uh, I don't since I was a little kid. That's kind of been my baby. I always wanted to go there. And understand pipeline and surf it and it's the event I've won most on tour and the place I've probably been most comfortable at and made all my surf buddies at in Hawaii and and uh, it's just a place place I
1: probably love the most when you turn it off when you take a pause to refresh your spirit where do you go where do I go or, or what do you I, do? Here? I usually go to
0: the golf course.
1: <laughs> That's kind of my thing. I like to go to the golf
0: course because I, I can, you know, choose the few people I want to be around, and, and it's quiet, and it's just me and the game, and it's, an, it's another challenge. I, I like challenges, you know. Golf, is a, golf and surfing are kind of ultimate challenges, you know. They're really, uh, they're, 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 and they're almost opposite each other. Surfing's all movement, you know, energy, n- nature, and whatever. And uh, the golf course is kind of just sitting there, waiting for you to make yourself look bad, so. Why do you think you like it? I don't know, I, I just like that challenge. It's such a simple thing, hit this ball over there, but it's, uh, it comes into like, uh, it, it, all these things have to kind of align, you know? You gotta get your mind clear and calm and your technique has to be right and you have to make
1: certain, it, it's kind of problem solving, you know? Golf's really problem solving, hitting the right shot. And your team was saying there are few things they can actually put on your calendar far out. A uh, couple of the golf tournaments That's are the, some of yeah. them. but I just missed this one. I, I'm missing one. In, uh, I'm missing
0: the Dunhill Links in uh, in Scotland this week. I just couldn't do it. I uh, we were going to be here today and tomorrow, and um, I'd love to be there. I'm texting with some friends that are over there now. Like oh, I'm a little jealous. I hope the weather's for you guys. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love my golf and, and, and you know, a lot of the surfers like it. I think it's a good balance from surfing. Surfing is. Just more constant high-energy, excitement, um, visuals. Golf is almost the opposite, you know? It's almost like a balance for us.
1: That's it for both of my chats with Kelly Slater. Head over to YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger to check out my attempts to ride the waves at the surf ranch. Plus, when I got a black eye surfing with Kelly in Malibu. Thanks for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.